The battle of Britain is about to begin. Welcome back to the Lead Pursuit Podcast. Tonight, we're going to stop talking about war game. We're going to talk about history again, and we're going to talk about some historical authors and the things they've written for the next couple episodes. I'm happy to have on the show tonight, Jay Stout. We'll talk to him in a second, because if there's one thing I've learned, it's you need to keep a pilot quiet. But first, we've at least got our other Marine on the program tonight. Chris, how are you doing tonight? Doing pretty good, man. So just just rolling along, freaking getting some gaming done, actually, getting some freaking game stuff done, finally. Um, Battletech Kickstarter showed up. Uh, I so know, I know. Yet another game, more, yet, yet more, more stuff games. to paint more, that I don't have more, time for. Yeah, more things you have so, to paint. Uh, That's awesome. Well, yeah, well, we chose yeah. not to have Trevor on the program because we realized we had four Marines on at one time. That probably be too much for the rest of our audience. So we decided to say, hey, Trevor, go do something else. Go go paint some more miniatures. Go go paint more of Doug's miniatures. You know, do some work. Out. So we're, we're on official testosterone, testosterone limit. Yeah, exactly. You know, we can't <laughs> take any more testosterone. So so we've got Chris on as as a retired Marine. We have me as the retired Marine. And Jay, Jay Stout, let me describe Jay Stout. So I'll use the words that uh, the late Colonel Walter J. Boyne said about Jay. Jay is a triple threat aviation historian. He's an experienced combat aviator, a meticulous researcher, and a compelling storyteller. So Jay, good to have you on the program tonight. Thanks so much. It's good to be here. Absolutely. Good to have you on. Well, so Jay, a lot of people may know you from your first couple books that you wrote. And that's where I was introduced to the, at the time, Lieutenant Colonel J. Guinness Stout. So first book of yours I read was obviously Hornets Over Kuwait. Now, that was a great book for those of us who were young, budding aviators, thought we knew what was going to go on in the Hornet community. And we kind of needed that tell-all, behind-the-scenes, no shit, here's how combat aviation works kind of book, uh, which which probably introduced you and your writing style to a lot of different people out there. What was what was kind of the feedback from that entry uh, to the writing world there? Well, the feedback primarily was that I chose an excellent way to end my career. So <laughs> that was gratifying. You, you might recall that the book um, uh, addressed some controversial issues uh, women in the military, the AV-8B Harrier, uh, the kind of way that Marines acted or, or did not act. That I do remember. Well, you know, it's it's funny you, you bring up the AV-8B Harrier because I think in that community's eyes, your your next book, Hammer from Above, uh, redeemed yourself in, in their eyes because for all of us Hornet babies, we suddenly felt betrayed. Here Here is our, our former Hornet pilot now saying good things about the Harrier in one of his books. And and I know I sat there reading through Hammer from Above, your, your discussion of uh, Operation Iraqi Freedom uh, air combat actions. I'm like, why is he saying anything nice about this community? Who are these guys? They're a bunch of jerks. So I'm sure that changed things a little bit. Well, you know, it was never about the guys. The guys are great. They're Marines, the guys who, who fly it and maintain it. Wonderful people. They got saddled with an aircraft that had a lot of limitations. And uh, it was much more limited during Desert Storm. 
when when I uh, saw my combat time. By the time of uh, enduring freedom and Iraqi freedom, they had fixed a lot of the problems. Some things I could not fix, but it uh, it was a more potent weapon system, and they operated it a little bit closer to the action than they had uh, during the Gulf War. So great guys uh, doing good things with a, in my view, fairly limited airframe. Yeah, it was always interesting for us as as the Hornet babies that we'd grown up looking down on our Harrier brothers. And, and it was funny that all of a sudden we show up in Iraqi Freedom. They have better targeting pods. Uh, they're getting a, a lot of the a lot of the good missions. But we were always happy because as Ford air controllers, what did we get? We got all the tanker gas. So all the tankers were at our disposal. <laughs> and so they routinely would be dropping into uh, to fobs out there on some highway strip, getting gassed up straight from a C-130. Uh, and we would hear no end of that uh, to, you know at the end of all the missions how come you guys got all the tankers well because we're the cool guys that fly hornets we need the tankers so, <laughs> so. but no that that was that was a great book for me to to read through to hear about all the things that i didn't know had had gone on um you know during uh during oif because i was so focused on our part of the battle and so didn't always get to get to hear all the all the other stories one of the things we talk about a lot on our program is moving on to all the history that's behind a lot of the games. So one of the books that you've written, Air Apaches, is about the 345th Bomb Group. What motivated you to, to pick up that story and to tell that story in the Pacific? I um, had done quite a few books on the air war over Europe, and um, I had always been pulled to the Pacific because like you and a lot of other Marines, we spent a lot of time in the Pacific. We read a lot about what happened in the Pacific, but interestingly, publishers were more interested in getting books about the air war over Europe because more people served in Europe during the war. So they had more children, more grandchildren. Essentially there were many more ready readers for the air war over Europe than there were for the air war over the Pacific. The market was bigger, but finally I, I, I had the opportunity to turn my attention to the Pacific. I uh, had always been fascinated by the low level attack missions that had been done with the B-25. It just seemed like a really rugged man's airplane getting in there down and dirty with a, uh, fairly ruthless enemy, and the Air Apaches were probably the iconic low-level B-25 unit in the Pacific. And I approached them, uh, their organization. They had a lot of members still at that time, a lot of information, a lot of data that I could draw from, and they were very cooperative and encouraging with that book. So, um, you know, that being the case, it's much more it's much easier to work with someone who wants to have a book written about them than it is to um, to work against somebody. So I chose the Air Apaches, the 345th Bomb. Yeah, so looking at a lot of their history, it's interesting how it intertwines with areas that uh, that both you and I have been, uh, realizing that the 345th trained out of Walterboro, South Carolina, which uh, to all of us that uh, that flew out of the low country, flew out of Beaufort, we think of it as a small outlying field somewhere, that small civilian field no one goes into, uh, and then obviously picked up a lot of their aircraft at Hunter Army Airfield, uh, accepted them there, did their acceptance flights, and then then did all their training. 
Uh, how much uh, of that associated history in South Carolina did you find for a lot of the B-25 units? Because I know there's a lot of it that took place up at Columbia. There's there's just a lot of airfields that now are civilian fields that really at the time were military training bases. You bet. That's the case uh, across much of the uh, the United States. But, you know, the place names that they brought up in South Carolina and North Carolina were, were familiar to me as they were to you. In fact, I think I had done a little bit of fishing in one of the lakes they had mentioned they, they put an aircraft or, or four down into. So uh, that was nice. It was nice to uh, to be able to talk to the veterans and say, yeah, I know exactly where you're talking about. I've been there. I think that's one of the interesting parts of the, kind of the low country history is because people don't realize with Savannah there, with the Mighty Eighth, you know, Walterboro, all the, the training for the B-25 units there, but also Walterboro uh, for Tuskegee Airmen, that there's actually squadrons that trained there and prepped uh, to go over it. And all the different aviation history that's wound up in South Carolina that a lot of people may or may not have uh, have been aware of. So it was interesting to, to go through, um, as I read your book, Jayhawk, which is specifically about one of these aircraft pods, about George Cooper uh, and about his time, you know, growing up in the Philippines, then coming to the U.S. and starting his service uh, as a B-25 pilot and going through flight school and all the all the funny stories that are obviously relatable to all of us who've been through military flight training. Um, but it was fascinating to see just the the number of casualties. And I think people a lot of times give that lip service about World War II training, that there were so many casualties. But your book really brings it home in Jayhawk that as you focused on this one individual and his training, how many of his friends did not make it through training phases or even people that he flew aircraft with that then he's in a you know a later training phase, they're flying a different airplane, they're now crashing and perishing uh, and sacrificing just before they've even made it into combat. Yeah, it's interesting because you think about it, the science of flight was, you know, not even, well, they hadn't been flying for even 40 years at that point. And uh, the flying machines, if you want to call them that, were certainly much more primitive than what you and I flew. Um, But the biggest factor, I think, is they went from a force of about 25,000 in 1938 to 2.5 million in 1944. Well, nobody in the, in the entire service virtually had been on the job for more than two or three years. So you had somebody who had learned to fly and gotten his wings, you know, a couple months earlier, training somebody else to learn to fly till they got their wings and on down the chain. So there wasn't a lot of experience out there, and they learned almost literally on the fly how to fly, how to fly in combat. They'd take lessons of those who had been in combat, trying to reincorporate them in. Um, and these guys were young. We're talking anywhere from, you know, there are a few exceptions, but most of them when they got into combat were somewhere between 20 and 24 years old. You think about what we were like when we were 20 to 24 years old. The rules weren't as strict back then. Again, (laughs) nobody really knew anything about making war from the air. So it's it's not remarkable at all that a lot of people died. 
Yeah, I, I, I think it's amazing that actually when you when you look at it, you laugh and you go, how did we even produce aviators when we have people who've barely been trained or that next generation of training instructor? And like you said, people, we're learning by doing. And so they're validating, hey, there's there's more procedures that we need to add or there's or there's more risk that we didn't account for. And and I'll jump all the way to the end of the book. It's a it's a fascinating uh commentary when uh when your focus of the book Jayhawk when when George has to go be a safety officer and now looking back at all the things that he's spent years learning the hard way and suddenly being the person who has to be the Johnny on the spot to go let's not make all those mistakes again let's let's not with this new <laughs> yeah. airplane go, go back through and relearn that that yes you know this is a dangerous business and it's it's things that we take for granted uh, today uh, in aviation we we take for granted how safe first of all civil aviation is and then even in military aviation with its risks we we take for granted that we have safety officers at all levels that sometimes feel really intrusive and sometimes you think they're missing the point but generally they're there to make sure we've we've learned those lessons and that we we don't put our hand back on the burner just to learn that it's hot. Yeah. yeah. You, you bring up a good point. George uh, was the grizzled veteran with a grand total of three years of flight time when he was thrust into that position, which was new, by the way. The United States Army Air Forces introduced safety officers to its uh, fighter and bomber and transport groups in 1944, after they'd been at war for, for several years, and there were no instructions for George. He said it was a one-page memorandum, so he had kind of carte blanche to develop his uh, his own program. But but again, on the other hand, he didn't have much guidance either. Right, right. Well, so let's talk a little bit. How did you end up with George as the focus of your book? How did, how did you go from talking about the Arapaches and, and an entire bomb group to saying, here's one individual I want to focus on? Well, Arapaches had been published for about, oh, two months or so when I got a call and it was from a nice lady and it turned out to be George's daughter. And she said, hey, my pops is, has read your book and he found it really interesting. And I think it'd be great for you to talk with him. And this was neat to me because she told me he's 99 years old. Um, and I realized then that he had probably flown in and obviously survived the early air battles over Rabal and Wewak. Whereas when I had been writing Air Apaches, I didn't know George existed. I didn't know he was still extant. Um, so, in fact, I, I couldn't find anyone when I wrote Air Apaches who had been alive and had flown over Rabal and Wewak. So I was excited to talk to George and uh, got on the phone with them. And I thought we'd just have a nice conversation and he could reminisce for a while and I could enjoy that. But the more and more we talked, the more and more I realized that his story would make a good book in its own right, because he had been born to an American father and a Filipina mother in the Philippines, had kind of had a, a well, his family was somewhat wealthy, so he had an unusual upbringing in, in idyllic Manila. And then he had gone to the States to attend KU, Kansas University, just as had his father when the war started. From that point, George never heard from his family because his father was incarcerated at Santo Tomas internment camp. His mother and his sister were essentially 
held in house arrest in Manila, and he had no idea in the world what had happened to them. So he goes through flight training, ends up in the Pacific, fighting the same ruthless, cruel enemy that was holding his family prisoner. And ultimately, he flies a complete tour in New Guinea and, and elsewhere in the Southwest Pacific, goes back to the States, does a stateside training tour, comes back, joins another unit, and then finds his family in the Philippines. And that made a really, really nice story. And then paralleling his own story, we follow what happened to some of his classmates and playmates. And some of that was absolutely gruesome. Also included in the story, but it helps make a... Uh, a very full story, a very complete story. It's not just air combat all the time. It's not a, a big flag-waving book. It's about what happened to real people, to families, not only in the uh, in the Philippines, but in the States as well. George had gotten married during the war, and he had a baby born while he was gone. So we cover some of that as well. Absolutely. I think I think for me, that made it a, a fascinating book, because like you say, it wasn't just flag waving and it wasn't just talking about the air combat stories that so many people tend to get focused on and wanting to hear the the, you know, how it was to fly against the flak, how it was to interdict the shipping, you know, all those those kind of stories that are retold. There was a lot of the interpersonal, which I did find was kind of funny as, I, as I'm reading the book, because even though I know George survives because you interviewed him, you tell so many stories <laughs> of him being, as we would say in modern aviation, the best squadron pilot, uh, which means he was probably the biggest risk taker that you sit there and, and I read this and I go, I know the guy lived, but this sounds like he's going to kill himself, either showboating around, showboating around the airfield or in one of these attack runs. I sit there and I go, how is he going to make it through this book that I know he did because he was interviewed? So I'm, I'm sure there had to be a moment as you were interviewing that you're like, you had to look at me and go, George, really? <laughs> did you really do that? Because that really sounded dumb. <laughs> yeah, the thing with George is that, um, you know, he probably forgot some missions that would have been the most exciting mission in my combat career. He, he saw a lot. He did a lot. And, and the book does cover that pretty well. But again, it, it's more than just air combat. Well, and I think there's something to be said for talking through a lot of the, the different kinds of fights that that George found himself in because the B-25, when most people think about it with the designation of B, they think of it doing level bombing kind of runs. And he talks through his part about all the upgun conversions and, and you do a great job without delving too much into the technical part of, of talking about how they went out and had to, to upgun those aircraft and how it changed the mission. And so you find it doing what, what you and I would call more of a fighter attack mission. Uh, than than what they would have thought of, which was was you know generally going in for a level bombing run. That's what B B series aircraft did, um, and that's what made it interesting to me. I mean, to think about that, you know, I've I've been fortunate enough to fly in a few B twenty fives, and to think about sticking your nose down in that thing and strafing any aircraft sites and things like that. I'm like, that sounds really crazy. <laughs> Why would anyone do something like that? That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> yeah, and you characterize it pretty well. It was more of a uh, fighter attack type mission. And I, I, I'm the same way. I've flown B-25s a couple of times and I, it's hard to me, uh, hard for me to imagine going in in that aircraft, which was relatively fast or reasonably fast for its time, 
but uh, it's compared to what you and I are used to, he's going in at about a half to a little bit less than half the the speed. And uh, all those guns firing at him, you know, under attack by uh, enemy fighters. Uh, on the other hand, he got down right in and amongst them. He could see who he needed to hit. So, uh, so those guys did it. Did a great job. They they generally, and that's the reason they made the airplane do that or, or modified it for that sort of mission, so they could get down and grub it out with the Japanese and see who they were trying to kill. There's a lot of interesting photos that are that are in the book of them, you know, turning over the shipping as they're coming off target and dropping the the parachute uh, frag bombs and and things like that. Uh, that you you sit there and you look at and you realize. Okay, this is a camera image, and I can recognize all of the airplanes that they're dropping these little parafrags on. So they're probably at about fifty feet, if that. <laughs> and it really it, it puts the uh, the what we think of as as combat aviation really puts it in perspective because it is a much more up close and personal kind of attack mission than generally what we as Americans are given as our World War II fare. Because generally we think of Eighth Air Force, we think of high altitude bombing campaigns. Or we think in the Pacific of B-29 raids, we don't think about people with the knife in their teeth, in the weeds, you know, in amongst the, the anti-aircraft fire uh, with zeros and all the other you know, bandits swarming around trying to shoot them down in the middle of that as well. And that's a that's a very different, very different mission uh, than most of what we saw. Yeah, I'll flatter us and say that it was almost like a, a Marine fight. <laughs> well, well, you, you mentioned that and there's a. Now inside the the shrine of Marine Weapon Schools, there the Mott's One hallway, there is a photo of a uh, Marine PBJ, uh, and I don't know what part of the Pacific Theater it was, but it's it's a very similar photo uh, where it's a low level attack run, and you can see all the the tracers coming up, and you see all the impacts uh, as they're down there with their six fifty cals in the nose, uh, doing Lord knows what, <laughs> trying to trying to duel it out yeah. with uh, with uh, anti aircraft cannons, so. Sure. Essentially the same airplane, different paint job. Absolutely. Yeah. A, a dark blue paint job instead of uh, camouflage. Well, Chris, I know you had a question you wanted to ask. Yeah, no, I was just saying that, you know, I've read several accounts just recently you know, on the Japanese side, and I was surprised in the Japanese accounts that I've read how much mixing it up with the 25 that they they recall and in in a lot of it, it's that, you know, they would say when the 17s would come over, the 29s would come over, they would come over, they would leave. The 25s would show up and they would just run after run after run. <laughs> you know, they would strafe and strafe and strafe and strafe. And if they didn't have fighter cap up or they didn't have they weren't didn't have the ability to get fighters up. They were like, you were living with these guys for, you know, an hour. So them tearing your small firebase apart. I know Subaru Sky's got one account where, you know, they couldn't get anything up. So all the pilots are running out to help man any aircraft guns that's all they could do they said we, we've got to get these things away from the base they're they're tearing up every fighter we've got on the airfield and it was just run after run after run and he said when he went back to the cp because the amount of guns on the 25 he says there was just bullet holes everywhere they just shredded everything so yeah it's it's definitely i know i reading those accounts gained a far better understanding of what the 25 pilots were doing and the mission that they had in comparison, like you said, other B-model aircraft, it was just a totally different war for those guys. And then I've started going back and you look at, you know, around New Guinea and some of those operations they were doing, 
flying basically early close air support. And then I started pulling, you know, you start pulling the YouTube footage. Okay, let's see what they've got out there on B-25s on YouTube. And you see some of those low end strafing and bombing runs where they're, I mean, literally going by and you can see the coconuts in the trees. They're, they're moving yeah. at, at such low altitude with all the guns blaring and the bombs coming off. And the, and it's, yeah, it's, it's, there's some incredible footage out there. If you've never been out there and really looked into the B-25, it's an amazing aircraft to look into. And there's luckily because of our camera technology, there was just some, there's some amazing gun footage out there of the work that those guys did. And I think that brings it home a lot more than just hearing accounts sometimes. Sure. I, I like that word you use, shredded, because I, I, I use that same word, um, that many rounds concentrated uh, so tightly, whatever they hit was literally shredded, be it uh, concrete buildings, uh, aircraft, uh, troops in their holes, uh, whatever, whatever they hit, it just literally tore it apart, shredded it. It's interesting. People th- sometimes think about, you know, 50 cals. They go, oh, whatever. It's not the 20 mil. It's not the 75 that uh, other upgunned versions uh, had. But when you have 650 cals facing forward, all hitting in a in a very fixed, narrow, beaten zone, I mean, that's that's a lot of a lot of steel going down range, and nothing good comes out of that. <laughs> yeah, it, that whole energy and and mass equation thing, and and you think about it, later models of that B twenty five, I think it was fourteen forward firing guns, if you included the top turret. So that was those later models were were beyond what George flew and the amount of uh, kinetic firepower they were sending down range was amazing. Oh, absolutely. It's interesting, though, he moves away from the B-25 partway through the book. So I'm not going to tell the whole story because otherwise people need to read the book. Uh, but he moves away from the B-25 and then finds himself in yet another attack platform. So so tell us a little bit about the the change as he leaves his squad and goes back to the States uh, for conversion training and then ends up obviously coming back to the Pacific. So yeah, George uh, finishes his, his combat tour. And at that time, it was typically 50 missions and they asked him to stay a little bit longer. In fact, his friend asked him to fly a few more missions so that his friend could complete 50 missions and go home. So George flew uh, a handful or more missions than he needed to, had a wife and a baby back home, uh, went home to them. Very happy reunion. Uh, Saw his daughter for the first time. You can imagine uh, the emotions he went through with that. And his wife and he and their new child settled down as much as they could. He went to a B-25 uh, training unit in uh, South Carolina. I believe it was Columbia. And then uh, from that point, George, as many of us do, started getting a little restless. And the Army Air Forces said that they needed people to train on a new airplane that they were looking to fill. It was the A-26 Invader, which was um, a Douglas aircraft. And if you can imagine that if they went to B-25 pilots and said, what could we do to the B-25 to make it better to do the mission that you were doing out there in the Southwest Pacific, what would that airplane look like? And, uh, of course, the A-26 was 
went into design earlier than that, but uh, the A26 was faster than the B25. It could go farther than the B25, carried a much smaller crew, crew of two, um, and um, was rugged and reliable, and George fell in love with it. And um, after some intimate discussions with his bride, he asked for a second tour in the Pacific. Ideally, he would have liked to have flown the A-26 right off the bat. Uh, that does happen a little bit later. But uh, he goes out to the Pacific, and part of his rationale was that the Allied forces were moving into the Philippines, and he wanted to be there to find his folks. Uh, he, again, really had no idea if they were even alive, had never seen a uh, letter. In fact, they had never sent or been able to send a letter, uh, had no word of any type from back home. And, um, of course, he was... He was very emotional, very anxious to get back there and find his folks. So off he goes again, uh, end of 44, start of 45, back to the Philippines. Uh, like you said, Jay, if, if you'd asked a B-25 pilot, what did they need to make the missions happen in the South Pacific? The A-26 would have been the answer. But like so many airplanes, the community didn't necessarily know how to use their airplane. One of the, the things I took from reading Jayhawk was that there was a real resistance to understand how the B-25 had, had done its missions and incorporate those same lessons learned into the A-26. What did, uh, what did George have to say about that? Because I know there's, there's some time he spent, as he would say, kind of wasting his time and not actually contributing to the squadron uh, during the missions. Yeah, so uh, George gets back to the Pacific and he gets assigned to the third bomb group, which had been uh, previously designated as the third attack group. And it had a very, uh, it was an, an iconic bomb group. It had a, uh, a, an illustrious history. And in fact, it was so illustrious that it competed with George's former bomb group, the 345th Air Apaches for attention and publicity, and they had a natural rivalry or competition uh, between them. And George shows up, he's formerly from the 345th, and now he's with the 3rd, and now they're not quite sure what to do with them. He's more experienced than virtually all of them, and uh, I'm not sure if it was personality issues or just the nature of the administrative beast but they had him uh, doing some staff work at the time they were flying the A-20, which was a, another predecessor to the A-26, a delightful little aircraft and a good performer, but didn't have the, the range and the payload and the armament of the B-25 or the later A-26. So George whiled away a couple months worth of time doing virtually nothing while the group finished their 10-year uh, flying A-20s and transitioning to the A-26. And it was only until that transition was nearly complete that George was made a squadron commander of the A-26s and took it into combat finally. And he was very excited to do so. Um, 
Unfortunately, but really happily, the war was nearly over by that time, and they had moved up to Okinawa, a few hundred miles south of the main Japanese islands, and he flew a, a couple, two, three missions up to the main islands uh, before the war ended. Uh, his his second combat tour had not been uh, nearly as, we'll call it, exciting as uh, his first combat tour had been. But happily, during that time, he had been able to locate his father, who was had been liberated from the uh, the prisoner camp, uh, was grossly malnourished and underweight, and happily he was able to find his mother and little sister. So they had a family reunion. Uh, you can imagine it was quite tearful. Lots of questions, um, lots of emotions. Um, one of the happiest moments, I'm sure, in George's in George's life. And the house, the uh, the family house was still standing. The Japanese had used it as a headquarters of some sort, uh, but not had not uh, had not destroyed it, and it had not been destroyed in, during the fighting in Manila. Much of Manila, in fact, had been leveled. Well, and I think that's one of the interesting things to bring up is that uh, I think a lot of Americans don't realize just how much firepower and and raw combat capability was put to getting the Japanese out of Manila. Because unlike MacArthur, they didn't just say, it's an open city. I want to preserve the history. I, want, uh, I would rather leave the city intact than make it a, a defensive bastion. And unfortunately, uh, the Americans just had to do uh, block by block shelling and bombing uh, in order to dislodge the the Japanese, uh, which which really is tragic. Unfortunately, we've seen that countless times in in warfare. Um, but it's it's just fascinating for for a lot of us who didn't realize that. You know, for, I know for myself, reading through it, I kind of assumed okay, it just it took damage like any other city. But no, it was it really became a, a redoubt of the Japanese there in, in the in the Philippine Islands. Yeah, um, you bring up a great point. It was a grand old city uh, dated, I believe, from the 1500s, uh, old, beautiful architecture. And as you indicated, it was reduced essentially to rubble. Um, probably it could be argued it's the, the most difficult urban fighting American forces have ever participated in enormous casualties and um, probably, well, it was one of the most gruesome um, ground campaigns uh, that the Americans participated in during the entire war. And of course, the uh, civilian populace um, was massacred in large part by the Japanese. Absolutely. So, so why do you think as Americans, we haven't really, really concentrated on that fight, especially in the military history. Uh, it's you, you'll always, especially in the Marine Corps, uh, you know, obviously that was a, an army fight, but in the Marine Corps, you'll talk about Hue City. You'll talk about so many other, you know, urban actions in Korea. And, and we'll talk about, you know, Okinawa. We, we don't talk about um, the army fighting their way through Manila. Is, is it just us turning a blind eye to part of history or is it, is it because we did what we didn't want to be? We were those people who had to level a city to save it in that sense. I think it's a couple of things. I think um, it, 
it, it should be recognized that as many people as, as the Japanese willfully killed, as many civilians as they purposely killed, the Americans with their artillery and other weapons killed a fair number of civilians as well. And also during this time, um, the war in Europe was wrapping up and uh, Germany was on the, the brink of surrender and finally did surrender on May 8th. And all the headlines were directed towards Europe and, and not as much attention was directed to the Philippines. And so I think because it was not as well known at that time, it continued to be relatively unknown all the way to the present day. Now, I've read accounts that said that that was done, you know, intentionally. You know, it was a it was a PR effort. The um, the PR that was necessarily coming out of the Pacific and the body counts that were coming out of the Pacific were not good storylines. And that was back when the military controlled the media in a lot of respects. And that was not something we wanted to concentrate on, especially with us at the time. A lot of people believing we had that long slog that was going to come in the invasion of the Japanese mainland. So, you know, it was it, a lot of that stuff was silenced. I mean, Pelilu, for how long was what really happened at Pelilu silenced? Um, it just wasn't an account that we that we we admitted to openly um, until the histories were written years and years later. So. That's yeah. an excellent point. Um, the, the body count was huge. The, the Philippines campaign was was extraordinarily bloody. And uh, I think if you quiz the average uh, casual World War II historian, they'd be surprised at the uh, at the number of men who were lost in the Philippines. I mean, I honestly think if you you quizzed a lot of people and asked them about army involvement in the Pacific, they would. Um, with the exception of some Army Air Corps guys, they would almost act like there wasn't a war in the Pacific. I mean, I'm surprised by how many people don't realize that, you know, Douglas MacArthur Army, <laughs> how, much, how much of the Army was there. There's so much focus on the Marine Corps and Nimitz. That's our wonderful PR machine. <laughs> yeah, I know. But it, just think about it. I mean, there's uh, there's a lot of people that just don't understand what the Army went through in the Pacific. I mean, it's almost like, sadly, like the Battle of North Africa. Um, it's just not a lot of stories except for us grognards that really get into history and, and stuff like that delve into that the headlines are all Europe and you're absolutely right. What was going on in Europe right then was, was, was good news. Um, and what was going on in Manila wasn't necessarily good news. Yeah. And, and that's another, uh, a good point you bring out. Uh, the army had more people in the Pacific than the Marines did. They did all that awful fighting yep. in uh, New Guinea, a number of other uh, Island campaigns. And then the whole, brutal slog through the Philippines, although there were Marines there. It was largely an, an army effort. And then, of course, uh, Okinawa. Yeah, it's what a lot of that live footage is done of, um, of the 25s is, is of the New Guinea campaign and showing the army guys and then the, the Kiwis and the freaking Aussies that were participating in it. So, yeah, it's just really, really fascinating history there. Well, Jay, one thing I wanted to talk about was unlike Chris, who did not deploy to the Western Pacific and somehow managed to avoid living in Okinawa and all those Never places went we to Okinawa. <laughs> Never went to Korea. 24-year career. All I got was <laughs> South America, Africa, and the Middle East and a little bit of Europe. That's I don't it. know how you sold your soul uh. to do that. <laughs> <laughs> 
But the funny thing to me was to read the accounts at the end of the book. And, uh, you know, in your time flying F-4s and F-18s, I'm, I'm sure more than once you had that opportunity to go to lovely garden spot of the Marine Corps, Irokuni, Japan, or down to Okinawa. Um, but it was funny to read this the, these stories and these missions about hitting targets of opportunity uh, around a lot of the places that were navigational aids for us. That, you know, as we'd go from Irokuni <laughs> down to Okinawa, I'm like, I know exactly where Kagoshima is. I can't even count any time, how many times I've flown over Kagoshima, you know. And so uh, to, to read about hitting uh, hitting naval facilities and things, hitting, hitting facilities on the Inland Sea, you know, how many mm-hmm. people can say they've flown at low level over the Inland Sea? Well, probably most of us that got stuck in Iwakuni. Um, <laughs> so, so that was that was really fascinating to me was to to have in a sense um, my understanding of of Japanese geography and, and Pacific geography really put uh, to a point with the missions uh, towards the end of the book. I thought that was interesting. Did you was is there any point when you're you're hearing these histories that you can you can actually go? I remember what it looks like to be at fifteen thousand feet over Kagoshima. <laughs> oh yeah, and when he talked about Okinawa, I actually went to grade school in, in Okinawa, and then of course through the Marine Corps was there many, many times. And so um, I knew exactly what George was talking about when he was describing parts of, of Okinawa. And you mentioned Japan. Um, he goes up to Japan after the surrender and spends time there and uh, works with the civilian population around Atsugi, of course, where, where we spent a lot of uh, time passing through. Um, and the reactions of the Japanese civilians and the military men he talked to, it was, you know, they had fought so savagely during the war, but were utterly submissive and cooperative after the war. It was, it was hard for him to reconcile. I think, uh, this, this brutal enemy he had fought was almost almost cooperative to the point where they were kind. And they explained to him that they had been told that when the Americans came, they would rape the women, kill the men, steal all the possessions, and that they may as well um, kiss their lives away, essentially. And the civilians and military men alike were, were stunned that that was not the way the American military operated. Absolutely. And, uh, George was was gratified to be able to act in a way that was the polar opposite of what his Japanese counterparts would have acted had they had they prevailed during the war. Well, and that's an interesting historical point because I I remember my dad's stories from being a Marine in Iwakuni in the 1960s and and being the base communication officer. So he always dealt with the civilian authorities and always dealt with the uh, Japanese telephone companies and and things like that. And it was funny for him to to meet Japanese veterans and for him to meet. You know, Japanese who had lived through that entire period. And obviously with Iwakuni being just south of Hiroshima, these people had been witnessed directly to the atomic bombing. And to for him to talk about how friendly they, they were and how helpful they were. And it was obviously a time of a lot of social upheaval in Japan and there were communist demonstrations and, and how his you know uh, office mates would say, no, you don't want to go downtown today. You want to wait to do your shopping till tomorrow, or or they would they would do whatever they could to to make it so that he was not put at risk uh, by any of the things going on. So it's a it's an interesting 
change in in the Japanese psyche and in, in, in a very um, very different way of of being exposed to what an occupying power is rather than how they occupied so much of the of the Pacific. Hmm. But likewise, we talked a little bit earlier, and I'll, I'll bring up the book now uh, because it's totally out of the aviation world, but your book, Slaughter at Goliad. So this is a book that I never expected a Hornet pilot to write. <laughs> why, why would an F-18 pilot write about a failed battle of Texas volunteers against the Mexican army and the follow-on massacre and slaughters. What what brought you to the point of of writing that history? That, in a sense, was the same kind of discussion there about uh, war crimes and and actions, but individual humanity in in the the mass of all these terrible things that's going on. Yeah. Well, for your listeners who aren't familiar, uh, during the Texas Revolution, there was a uh, uh, a battle between American volunteer forces against the Mexican army and ultimately the Americans uh, believing that they would be paroled or imprisoned for the length of or the duration of the conflict, they surrendered. And instead of being paroled or imprisoned, uh, a short time later, they were marched out in uh, a few three or four large groups and massacred, literally gunned down. They killed about 400 of them. Uh, It was one of the largest losses of human life or Americans in combat up to that time in our history. Anyway, I had been stationed not far from there in South Texas. And I was in Beeville, Texas, a, a neat little town, very friendly people, lovely people. There's not a lot of things to do there. Uh, I was at, I was an instructor at uh, Chase Field at Beeville. And when friends or family came to visit, we would drive the 12 or 15 miles to the site of the battle and the massacre, which was the mission at Goliad. And if you had ever imagined what the Alamo looked like, this is what, in your mind's eye, the Alamo looked like. It's out there in a field, kind of solitary, surrounded by ranches and farms. And you can look at that structure and think about what the battle must have been like. Whereas Alamo, it's downtown San Antonio, and it's in the heart of all the traffic and crime and everything that comes with a big city. Anyway, it struck me that... No one had ever written a coherent book-sized narrative of this battle, of what had happened, what had gone on that led up to it, the actual battle, the massacre itself. No one had ever done that with a popular book. And I thought, these guys deserve it. Their story needs to be known. And... um So I I set out to do that, Um, did a lot of research, did a lot of interviews on the site there with various historians, and the Naval Institute Press bought that book and published it. I think it was probably my fourth or fifth book. Anyway, I've been pretty proud of it, and I feel better now that the guys are 
are recognized somewhere. Absolutely. Well, there, there's some interesting parallels because there's there's definitely in both Jayhawk and in Slaughter at Goliath, there's, a, there's an attempt to show the good with the bad and to show the good in the bad in the sense that there are there are always um, people fighting for, for causes or things that we as Americans may not agree with. Uh, or, or even in units that are creating horrible human catastrophe, but that there's still people who try to do the right thing in the middle of that, and that, that they try to show mercy and they try to be uh, less evil and less horrendous than a lot of the other things that are going on. And it really brings back the, the circle of kind of everyone's humanity, that uh, even though a lot of times we like to vilify our enemies and like to think of them as as inhuman. Um, they are still thinking human beings. They're making rational decisions, things we may not uh, may not understand, but that that we have to understand. They have you know parents too. They have children. They um, they a lot of times do feel the the same hurts and the same the same feelings we do. And it's it's interesting in both the books, both uh, in Jayhawk and in Slaughter. Uh, the talk about how many people chose to put themselves at risk to do the right thing, to either let people go from a from a prison in the Philippines or to not exploit uh, things that were going on or to to let people in Texas, uh, you know, to, to basically parole some of those soldiers themselves and to put their own life on the line to defend some of those American soldiers. Yeah. And that's um, that's something uh, what you just said there has has been part of my writing since the very beginning. Um, that guy you're out there trying to kill because you're at war was somebody else's baby boy. And, you know, somebody was excited to bring him home from the hospital or the midwife. Uh, that was somebody's brother. Um, and you probably encountered it, uh, your travels throughout the world. I find that we're pretty much all the same. We, we, want our families to be happy and fed and clothed and healthy. Um, our, our basic needs and our outlooks on life are not that different. And I, you know, I encounter the same personalities, uh, not only, not only in different places around the world, but when I talked to these old world war two vets, I knew I could picture in my mind, this guy I'm talking to, Oh, you're just like so and so in uh, VMFA three twelve in nineteen eighty five, or that guy you're talking about. I know exactly what type he is, um, and it gets into the greatest generation discussion. And uh, I'll come out and say that uh, I've interviewed a lot of World War II vets, and by and large, they're they're great people. As by and large, most of us. Are, but I've come across my share of jackasses and people I would not give <laughs> the time of day to. Uh, That's actually I refreshing to hear, you know. Yeah, <laughs> They're yeah. human like us. <laughs> they are just like us. They are, if you want to use that term, and I don't like it, they're the greatest because they they endured the, the Great Recession. Of course, what else are you going to do? You're not, you're not going to lay down and die, so you're going to endure. And then World War II was thrown right on top of them, and they stepped up just as I believe 
most folks would today stepped up to do the right thing for their country. Well, absolutely. And and listeners to the podcast have heard me make this point before that it's amazing to me with all of the history and, and Marine Corps, I'll call it propaganda, that, that we are <laughs> invested with from day one as, as young Marine officers, that uh, when you go out there and you, you look at the amazing things done by World War II Marines, and you sometimes feel a little bit sheepish when you turn around and look at your at your modern day Marines. But then you realize that uh, some of my counterparts that were there in Afghanistan, they were there for six months of constant fighting. There was no R&R. There was no going to Australia. There there was no hard fought four weeks of, a, of an operation and then a month, two months, three months of refitting. And they're very different experiences. And, and I think we as we as warriors shouldn't try to hold one above the other. Uh, we should just recognize that it's amazing what humans will endure. And it's amazing the things they will do when they're fighting for a cause. Um, and and we really should, should do our level best to reward um, all of our soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marine, Coast Guardsmen, <laughs> Department yeah, of State, yeah. uh, you know, FBI, all, all those people who are who are overseas that are doing these things, uh, because it's it's really a demanding uh, career choice. And, and it's it's fascinating the, the level of effort they have to go through. It, it is. And um, to your point, uh, the, the smart guy will never try and uh, say his war was tougher or harder or better than than somebody else's war there's all war can be gruesome and you don't know what that individual you're talking to endured or did, did not endure in, in his fight his conflict. absolute absolutely well, I do have to say that I thought it was interesting to get to the end of the book and to to have all these books that I'd read through written by by Jay Stout, the fighter pilot, and always had this this vision of Jay as the the steely eyed, hard fighter pilot, and to realize what a softy you were. By the way, this <laughs> book ends, which I'm not going to ruin for everyone. I'm just going to leave this dangling out there. The way this book ends, some of the comments in in Slaughter at Goliad that I'm like, Jay Stout has a heart. <laughs> <laughs> this is not the Jay Stout I've sold myself on. So. Um, I thought the book was amazing. I, I really enjoyed it. I'm not saying that just uh, just because I've got you on the podcast. I, I really enjoyed it. I got to the end. I'm like, that's an awesome ending. And I can't believe I'm done with the book. So, um. uh, <laughs> Thanks for saying so. Yeah, I uh, I consider myself a tough guy, but I, I cry at it all the time. Don't tell anybody, but I watch the occasional Hallmark uh, <laughs> romantic, You're getting all uh, geared up for the drama. Hallmark Christmas season now that <laughs> sure. you're, you're all excited. Uh, Get me in front of a dog story and I'll cry. Well, and, and that's a, you know, what, I, what I have to laugh about is how much the, the human and animal interaction is in, in all these books. Um, and, and I thought that was a, a great way to, to finish off the book. So, um, but once again, it's, it's a really good story, sort of an individual account and uh, covering a lot of the history that, that I think all of us think tends to get pushed to the side and maybe not uh, not told in the level of detail that it should. Yeah, I'll make the point also that uh, George was 99 when I started with him on this book, had just turned 99, and he's uh, he's well into his 100th year and, and doing just great and uh, happy with the attention he's gotten with the book. I, I consider it our book. He, he uh, did a great job helping me out, um, and I'm uh, excited for George and that he's still with us. He's, he's a true gentleman and a warrior at the same time. He's a great guy. 
Well, thanks for taking the time to come onto the podcast and to talk about it. Uh, obviously, if anyone wants to go find Jayhawk, it's available on Amazon. It's available on Kindle. Uh, it's available out there in hard copy uh, format as well. Um, so please go out there and read it. And unlike me, go read Air Apaches first. <laughs> so, so you have uh, all the background and you're not being a Wikipedia historian like I am trying to build your knowledge uh, as you're reading the book. But uh, thanks for sharing all that with us. And thanks for uh, talking to us. It's always good to have uh, another uh, retired Marine on the on the podcast and on the team, uh, even if everyone else feels like we're ganging up on them. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks again. I, I appreciate the opportunity and it was uh, a pleasure to spend time with you. Thank you. After editing the last two episodes of audio, uh, I've been having a great time cutting out everyone's background noise and <laughs> cell phones ringing. You like Steve Smalfree? Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> with the microphone right here, <laughs> feel free to uh, yeah, feel free to mute yourself. You moved to Alabama. You can't blame Harger anymore. I, I have, well, the funny thing is this is the best internet I have is, is out here in Alabama. It's better than hard gray in lovely Beaufort, South Carolina. Copper okay. wire and so a freaking tomato can. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. That would be Beaufort, South Carolina's internet. Yeah.